Welcome to Volume 7 of How Right You Are, Jeeves. Chapter 13 Giving the wench the once-over as she entered, I found myself well able to understand why Bobby, on observing her entangled with Kipper, had exploded with so loud a report. Of course, I'm not myself an idealistic girl in love with a member of the staff of the Thursday Review and never have been, but if I were, I know, I'd get the Megrims somewhat severely if I caught him in a cinch with anyone as personable as the stepdaughter of Aubrey Upjohn. For though shaky on the IQ, physically she was, I had to admit, a piperino of the first water. Her eyes were considerably bluer than the skies above. She was wearing a simple summer dress which accentuated rather than hid the graceful outlines of her figure, if you know what I mean. And it was not surprising that Wilbert Cream, seeing her, should have lost no time in reaching for the book of poetry and making a beeline with her to the nearest leafy glade. Oh, Mrs. Travers, she said, spotting at Dahlia. I've just been talking to Daddy on the telephone. This took the old ancestor's mind right off the tangled affairs of the Kipper Barbie access, to which a moment before she had been according her best attention. And I didn't wonder. With the prize giving at Market Snodsbury Grammar School, a function at which all that was bravest and fairest in the neighbourhood would be present, only two days away, she must have been getting pretty uneasy about the continued absence of the big shots later to address the young scholars and ideals and life in the world outside. If you're on the board of governors of a school and have contracted to supply an orator for the great day of the year, you can be forgiven for feeling a trifle jumpy when you learn that the silver-tongued one has gathered off to the metropolis, leaving no word as to when he will be returning, if ever. For all she knew, Upjohn might have got the holiday spirit and be planning to remain burning up the boulevards indefinitely. And of course, nothing gives a big beano a black eye more surely than the failure of the principal speaker to show up. She now quite naturally blossomed like a rose in June, and asked if the old son of a bachelor had mentioned anything about when he was coming back. Oh, he's coming back tonight. He says he hopes you haven't been worrying. A snort of about the calibre and an explosion in an ammunition dump escaped my late father's sister. Oh, does he? Well, I've a piece of news for him. I have been worrying. What has kept him in London for so long? He's been seeing his lawyer about this libel action he's bringing against the Thursday Review. I've often asked myself how many inches it was that Kipper leapt from his chair at these words. Sometimes I think it was ten, sometimes only six. But whichever it was, he unquestionably came up from the padded seat like an athlete competing in the sitting high jump event. Scarface McCall couldn't have risen more nippily. Against the Thursday Review? said Aunt Dahlia. That's your rag, isn't it, young herring? What have they done to stir him up? It's this book Daddy wrote about preparatory schools. He wrote a book about preparatory schools. Did you know he had written a book about preparatory schools? Hadn't an inkling. Nobody tells me anything. Well, he wrote this book about preparatory schools. It was about preparatory schools. About preparatory schools, was it? Yes, about preparatory schools. Thank God we've got that straightened out at last. 
I had a feeling we should get somewhere if we dug long enough. And... And the Thursday Review said something libelous about it. And Daddy's lawyer says the jury ought to give Daddy at least £5,000 because they libelled him. So he's been in London all this time seeing his lawyer. But he's coming back tonight. He'll be here for the prize giving. And I've got this speech all typed up and ready for him. Oh, there's my precious poppet said Phyllis, as a distant barking reached her ears. He's asking for his dinner, the sweet little angel. All right, darling, Mama's coming. She fluted and buzzed off on the errand of mercy. A brief silence followed her departure. I don't care what you say, said Aunt Dahlia at length, in a defiant sort of way. Brains aren't everything. She's a dear, sweet girl. I love her like a daughter. And to hell with anyone who calls her a half-wit. Why, hello! She proceeded, seeing that Kipper was slapped back in his chair, trying without much success to hitch up a drooping lower jaw. What's eating you, young herring? I could see that Kipper was in no shape for conversation, so I took it upon myself to explain. A sudden stickiness has arisen, aged relative, you heard what P. Mills said before going off to minister to Poppet. Those words tell the story. What do you mean? The facts are readily stated. Upjohn wrote this slim volume, which, if you recall, was about preparatory schools. And in it, so Kipper tells me, said that the time spent in these establishments was the happiest of our lives. Ye Ed passed it on to Kipper for comment. And he, remembering the dark days at Melvin House, Bramley on Sea, when he and I were plucking the Gowans, fine there, slated it with no uncertain terms. Correct, Kipper? He found speech, if you could call making a noise like a buffalo taking its foot out of a swamp finding speech. But dash it. He said finding a bit more. It was perfectly legitimate criticism. I didn't miss my words, of course, but it would be interesting to find out what those unminced words were, said Aunt Dahlia, for among them there appear to have been one or two which seemed likely to set your proprietor back five thousand of the best and brightest. Bertie, get your car out and go to Market Snodsbury Station and see if the bookstall has a copy of this week's. No, wait, hold that line. Cancel that order. I shan't be a minute. She said and went out, leaving me totally fogged as to what she was up to. What ants are up to is never an easy thing to divine. I turned to Kipper. Bad show, I said. From the way he writhed, I gathered that he was feeling it could scarcely be worse. What happens when an editorial assistant on a weekly paper lets the bosses in for substantial libel damages? He was able to answer that one. He gets the push. And what's more finds it pretty damn difficult to land another job. He's on the blacklist. I saw what he meant. These birds who run weekly papers believe in watching the pennies. They like to get all that's coming to them. And when the stuff, instead of pouring in, starts pouring out as the result of an injudicious move on the part of a unit of the staff, what they do to that unit is plenty. I think Kipper's outfit was financed by some sort of board or syndicate, but boards and syndicates are just as sensitive about having to cough up as individual owners. 
As Kipperin indicated, they not only give the airing unit the heave-ho, but pass the word around to the other boards and syndicates. Herring, the latter say when Kipper comes seeking employment. Isn't he the bimbo who took the bread out of the mouths of the Thursday Review people? Chuck the bladder out the window, and we want to see him bounce. If this action of Upjohn's went through, Kipper's chances of any sort of salaried post were meagre, if not slim, and might be years before all was forgiven and forgotten. Selling pencils in the gutter is about the best I'll be able to look forward to, said Kipper, and he had just buried his face in his hands, as fellows are apt to do when contemplating a future that's a bit on the bleak side, when the door opened to reveal, not as I had expected, Aunt Dahlia, but Bobby. I got the wrong book, she said. The one I wanted was. Then her eye fell on Kipper, and she stiffened in every limb, rather like Lot's wife, who, as you probably know, did the same thing that time there was all that unpleasantness with the cities of the plain and got turned into a pillar of salt, though what was the thought behind this I've never been able to understand. Salt, I mean. Seems so bizarre somehow, and not at all what you would expect. Oh, she said haughtily, as if offended by this glimpse into the underworld, and even as she spoke, a hollow groan burst from Kipper's interior, and he raised an ashen face. And at the sight of that ashen F, the haughtiness went out of Roberta Wickham, with a whoosh, to be replaced by all the old love, sympathy, womanly tenderness, and what not. And she bounded at him like a leopardess getting together with a lost cub. Oh, Reggie, 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 darling, what is it? She cried, her whole demeanour undergoing a marked change for the better. She was, in short, melted by his distress. As so often happens with the female sex, poets have frequently commented on this. You are probably familiar with the one who said, Oh, woman, in our hours of ease, tum tum dee tiddly something please. When something, 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 brow, or something, 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 thou. She turned on me with an animal snarl. What have you been doing to my poor lamb? She demanded, giving me one of the nastiest looks seen that summer in the Midland Counties. And I had just finished explaining that it was not I, but fate or destiny that had removed the sunshine from the poor lamb's life when Aunt Dahlia returned. She had a slip of paper in her hand. I was right, she said. I knew Upjohn's first move on getting a book published would be to subscribe to a press-cutting agency. I found this on the whole table. It's your review of his slim volume, young herring, and having run an eye over it, I'm not surprised he's a little upset. I'll read it to you. As might have been expected, this having been foreshadowed a good deal in one way or another, what Kipper had written was on the severe side, and as far as I was concerned, it fell into the rare and refreshing fruit class. I enjoyed every minute of it. It concluded as follows. Aubrey Upjohn may have taken a different view of preparatory schools. If he had done a stretch at the Dutherby's Hall conducted by him at Malvern House, Bramley-on-Sea, as we had the misfortune to do. We have not forgotten the sausages on Sunday, which were made not from contented pigs, but from pigs which had expired, regretted by all, of glanders, the bots, and tuberculosis. Until this passage left the aged relative's lips, Kipper had been sitting with the tips of his fingers together, nodding from time to time as much as to say, 
Caustic, yes, but perfectly legitimate criticism. But on hearing this excerpt, he did another of his sitting high jumps, lowering all previous records by several inches. It occurred to me as a passing thought that if all other sources of income failed, he had a promising future as an acrobat. But I never wrote that. He gasped. Well, it's here in cold print. But that's libelous. So up John and his legal eagle seem to feel, and I must say it reads like a pretty good five thousand pounds worth to me. Let me look at that. Yipped Kipper. I don't understand this. No. Half a second, darling. Not now. Later. I want to concentrate. He said, for Bobby had flung herself on him and was clinging to him like the ivy on the old garden wall. Oh, Reggie, she wailed. Yes, wails the word. It was me. What? That thing Mrs. Travers just read. You remember you showed me the proof at lunch that day and told me to drop it off at the office as you had to rush along to keep a golf date? I read it again after you'd gone and saw you had left out that bit about the sausages. Accidentally, I thought. And it seemed to me so frightfully funny and clever that, well, I just put it in at the end. I felt it just rounded the thing off. Chapter 14 There was silence for some moments, broken only by the sound of an ant saying, Lord love a duck. Kipper stood blinking, as I had sometimes seen him do at the boxing tourneys in which he had indulged when in receipt of a shrewd buffet on some tender spot like the tip of the nose. Whether or not the idea of taking Bobby's neck in both hands and twisting it into a spiral floated through his mind, I can't say. But if so, it was merely the idle dream of a couple of seconds or so, for almost immediately love prevailed. She had described him as a lamb, and it was with all the mildness for which lambs are noted he now spoke. Oh, I see. So that's how it was. I'm so sorry. Don't mention it. Can you forgive me? Oh, rather. I meant well. Of course you did. Will you really get into trouble about all this? Oh, there may be some slight unpleasantness. Oh, Reggie! It's quite all right. I've ruined your life. Oh, nonsense. The Thursday Review isn't the only paper in London. If they fire me, I'll accept employment elsewhere. This scarcely squared with what he had told me about being blacklisted, but I forbore to mention this, for I saw that his words had cheered Bobby up considerably. I didn't want to bung a spanner into a mood of beyond etre. Never does to dash the cup of happiness from a girl's lips, when after plumbing the depths she has started to take a swig of it. Of course, she said. Any paper would be glad to have a valuable man like you. Yes, they'll fight like tigers for his services, I said, helping things along. You don't find a chap like Kipper out of circulation for more than a day or so. You're so clever. Oh, thanks. I don't mean you, ass. I meant Reggie. Oh, yes, Kipper has what it takes all right. All the same, said Aunt Dahlia. I think when Upchart arrives, you had better do all you can to ingratiate yourself with him. I got a meaning. She was recommending that grappling to the soul with hoops of steel stuff. Yes, I said. Exert the charm, Kipper. There's a chance he might call the thing off. Oh, he's bound to, 
said Bobby. Nobody can resist you, darling. Do you think so, darling? Of course I do, darling. Well, let's hope you're right, darling. In the meantime, said Kipper, if I don't get that whiskey and soda soon, I shall disintegrate. Would you mind if I went in search of it, Mrs. Travers? It's the very thing I was about to suggest myself. Dash along and drink your fill, my unhappy young stag at eve. I'm feeling rather like a restorative too, said Bobby. Me also, I said, swept along in the tide of the popular movement. Though I would advise, I said, when we were outside, making it port, more authority. We'll look on on swordfish. He will provide. We found Pop Glossop in his pantry, polishing silver and put in our order. He seemed a little surprised at the inrush of such a multitude, but on learning that our tongues were hanging out, obliged with a bottle of the best, and after we had done a bit of tissue restoring, Kipper, who had preserved a brooding silence since entering, rose and left us, saying that if we didn't mind, he would like to muse apart for a while. I saw Pop Glossop give him a sharp look as he went out, and I knew that Kipper's demeanour had roused his professional interest, causing him to scent in the young visitor a potential customer. These brain specialists are always on the job and never miss a trick. Tactfully, waiting till the door had closed, he said, Is Mr. Herring an old friend of yours, Mr. Worcester? Bertie! I beg your pardon, Bertie. Have you known him for some time? Practically from the egg. And is Miss Wickham a friend of his? Reggie Herring and I are engaged, Sir Roderick, said Bobby. Her words seemed to seal the glossop lips. He said, Oh, and began to talk about the weather and continued to do so until Bobby, who since Kipper's departure had been exhibiting signs of restlessness, said she thought she would go and see how he was making out. Finding himself de-wickhamed, he unsealed his lips without delay. I did not like to mention it before Miss Wickham, as she and Mr. Herring are engaged, for one is always loath to occasion anxiety. But that young man has a neurosis. He isn't always as dippy as he looked just now. Nonetheless. And let me tell you something, Roddy. If you were as up against it as he is, you'd have a neurosis too. And feeling that it would do no harm to get his views on the Kipper situation, I unfolded the tale. So you see the position, I concluded. The only way he can avoid the fate that is worse than death, viz., letting his employers get nicked for a sum beyond the dreams of avarice, is by ingratiating himself with Upjohn, which has seemed to any thinking man a shot that's not on the board. I mean, he had four years with him in Malvern House, and didn't ingratiate himself once, so it's difficult to see how he's going to start doing it now. Seems to me the thing's an impasse. French expression, I explained, meaning that we're stymied good and proper with no hope of finding a formula. To my surprise, instead of clicking the tongue and waggling the head gravely to indicate that he saw the stickiness of the dilemma, he chuckled fatly, as if having spotted an amusing side to things which had escaped me. Having done this, he blessed his soul, which was his way of saying, Go blimey. It really is quite extraordinary, my dear Bertie, he said, how associating with you restores my youth. Your lightest word seems to bring back old memories. I find myself recollecting episodes in the distant past, which I have not thought of for years and years. It is as though you waved a magic wand of some kind. 
This matter of the problem confronting your friend Mr. Herring is a case in point. While you were telling me of his troubles, the mists shredded away, the hands of the clock turned back, and I was once again a young fellow in my early twenties, deeply involved in the strange affair of Bertha Simmons, George Lanchester, and Bertha's father, old Mr. Simmons, who at that time resided in Putney. He was in the imported lard and butter business. The what was that strange affair again? He repeated the cast of characters and asked me if I would care for another drop of port, a suggestion with which I readily fell in and proceeded. George, a young man of volcanic passions, met Bertha Simmons at a dance at Putney Town Hall in aid of the widows of deceased railway porters, and became instantly enamoured, and his love was returned. When he encountered Bertha the next day in Putney High Street, and taking her off to a confectioner's for an ice cream, offered her with it his hand and heart, she accepted them enthusiastically. She said that when they were dancing together on the previous night, something had seemed to go all over her, and he said he had had exactly the same experience. Twin souls, what? A most accurate description. In fact, so far so good. Precisely. But there was an obstacle, and a very serious one. George was a swimming instructor at the local baths, and Mr. Simmons had higher views for his daughter. He forbid the marriage. I'm speaking, of course, of the days when fathers did forbid marriages. It was only when George saved him from drowning that he relented and gave the young couple his consent and blessing. How did it happen? Perfectly simple. I took Mr. Simmons for a stroll on the riverbank and pushed him in. And George, who was waiting in readiness, dived into the water and pulled him out. Naturally, I had to undergo a certain amount of criticism of my clumsiness, and it was many weeks before I'd received another invitation to Sunday supper at Chatsworth, the Simmons residence. Quite a privation in those days when I was a penniless medical student and perpetually hungry. But I was glad to sacrifice myself to help a friend, and the results, as far as George was concerned, were of the happiest. And what crossed my mind as you were telling me of Mr. Herring's desire to ingratiate himself with Mr. Upjohn was that a similar is set-up, the term you young fellows use, would answer in this case. All the facilities are here at Brinkley Court, in my rambles about the grounds, I have noticed a small but quite adequate lake and, well, there you have it, my dear Bertie. I throw it out, of course, merely as a suggestion. His words left me all of a glow when I thought of how I had misjudged him in the days when our relations had been distant. I burned with shame and remorse. It seemed incredible that I could have ever looked on this admirable loony doctor as the menace in the treatment. What a lesson I felt! This should teach all of us that a man may have a bald head and bushy eyebrows and still remain at heart a jovial sportsman and one of the boys. There was about an inch of the ruby juice nestling in my glass, and as he finished speaking, I raised the beaker in a reverent toast. I told him he had hit the bull's-eye and was entitled to a cigar or a coconut, according to choice. I'll go and take the matter up immediately with my principles. Can Mr. Herring swim? Like several fishes. Then I see no obstacle on the path. We parted with mutual expressions of goodwill, 
and it was only after I had emerged into the summer air that I remembered I hadn't told him that Wilbert had purchased, not pinched, the cow creamer, and for a moment I thought of going back to apprise him, but I thought of it again and didn't. First things first, I said to myself, and the item at the top of the agenda paper was the bringing of a new sparkle to Kipper's eyes. Later on, I told myself, would do, and carried on to where he and Bobby were pacing the lawn with bowed heads. I would not be long, I anticipated, before I would be bringing those heads up with a jerk. Nor was I an heir. Their enthusiasm was unstinted. Both agreed unreservedly that if Upjohn had the merest spark of human feeling in him, which, of course, had still to be proved, the thing was in the bag. But you didn't think this up yourself, Bertie, did you? said Bobby, always inclined to underestimate the Worcester shrewdness. You've been talking to Jeeves. No, as a matter of fact, it was Swordfish who had the idea. Kipper seemed surprised. You mean you told him about it? I thought it was a strategic move. Four heads are better than three. And he advised shoving up John into the lake. That's right. Rather a peculiar butler. I turned this over in my mind. Peculiar? Oh, I don't know. Fairly run-of-the-mill, I should call him. Yes, more or less the usual type. 